One of the best-known characters from the Disney franchise is the genie from Aladdin. And uh, you've probably seen that movie, the genie, a mythological creature, uh, originally uh, actually taken from Islamic culture. The word genie comes from jinn, which uh, is kind of an angelic type creature uh, in Islam. But uh, popularly in our our culture, uh, genies portrayed as having the ability to grant wishes to their human master. And in Aladdin, we know that the the genie granted Aladdin three wishes, and that uh, story has often provoked uh, the, um, the discussion or the question, perhaps, of what you would wish for if you were in Aladdin's shoes. And uh, we've had some of those uh, types of discussions in our car on family trips. What would you wish for if you had if you had three wishes and you could wish for anything at all in the world. Well, it's kind of fun to think about that if you had the chance to ask for anything at all. But today as we open the Word of God, we're going to see the story of a real-life king who is actually given this opportunity. And uh, not by a a mythical uh, genie in a Walt Disney movie, but by the Lord God Himself. And so let's open up our Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, we're going to learn together about King Solomon and Solomon's greatest wish. Solomon's greatest wish. I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning. I remind you as I read that this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord, the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honors, so that no other king will compare with you all your days. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. 
Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, it was not the child I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. And the first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. The other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child. By no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman. By no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. This is the word of the Lord. Well, church, we are now uh, two chapters into our study in the book of First and Second Kings. We've seen over the past two sermons the transition of political power from David to Solomon. And this was a transition fraught with political danger and intrigue. David's 40-year reign almost concluded with revolution and with civil war. But David wisely averted disaster at the hands of his treasonous son, Adonijah, and he ensured the rightful and the peaceful transition of power to the king whom God had chosen. That was his younger son, Solomon. In chapter 1, we witness the failure of Adonijah's revolution. In chapter 2, we see the death of King David. We see the consolidation of political power under Solomon. And chapter 2, of course, contained David's dying words as a father to a son. David's earnest desire that Solomon would show himself a man, honor the law of God, execute faithfully the solemn responsibilities of his office. And now having dealt with these matters of political transition, matters of national security, we turn in chapter 3 to see the first full-orb snapshot of Solomon's rule and reign over Israel. And this is the first hint, the first glimpse we get of what kind of king this man was to become. And so this morning we turn our attention to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we're going to consider the message of the text under three main headings. First of all, we see here Solomon's wavering in verses 1 to 2. Secondly, Solomon's worship in verses 3 to 9. And then thirdly and finally, Solomon's wisdom in verses 10 to 28. So there's wavering in this text, there is worship in this text, and there is wisdom in this text. And with 
the help of our God, that's where we're heading this morning. And so we begin then by looking at Solomon's wavering as it's described for us in the opening verses of the chapter. Look again with me at your Bibles and let's look at the first three verses. <coughs> it says there, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David till he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord in the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Back in chapter 2, we observed David's great concern for the spiritual condition of Solomon, and especially of Solomon's posture towards the Lord. Solomon's posture towards the Word of God and towards the law that God had revealed to the nation. David understood, as we saw last time in chapter 2, the security of a nation is tied to the spiritual condition of his leaders. Spiritual leadership is a matter of national security. That's uh, what David understood. Why? Because God blesses godly nations that submit to the precepts of His Word and law, and God brings judgment and wrath upon nations that disregard His Word. And as David was lying on his deathbed, David is thinking about the future of Israel. He is thinking about the national security of Israel. Will this nation continue to experience God's hand of blessing and prosperity under the leadership of Solomon? Or will this nation now come under the heavy hand of divine judgment? So David reminds his son, the new king, that biblical manhood involves a love for God's word, that the king must keep the charge of the Lord, he must walk in God's ways, he must keep God's statutes, commandments, rules, and testimonies. Instruction for kings and magistrates, godly men, godly kings and magistrates are men of the word. And God's law has something vitally important to say to kings and to rulers of nations. By the way, that includes this nation called Canada. Do you think God's word has something to say to Canada and to the magistrates of Canada? And so now that King David has died, he has passed from the scene of Israel's history, we are left wondering as the reader, will Solomon listen to dad? Will Solomon listen to the voice of of wisdom, or will Solomon begin to move in a foolish direction? And while we may have hoped for an A-plus rating on Solomon's first position review, what we find instead here in the opening part of chapter 3 is a king who is already starting to struggle. There is here a king who is wavering and waffling. There is a king in this chapter in whom there is much to admire, but yet there is a king here in whom there are signs of trouble. And as we make our way through the book of Kings in this series of sermons, we look in depth at the course of Israel's monarchy. We're going to see the author of this book is brutally honest. This is brutal honesty. This is not political propaganda. Because if it was political pro propaganda, we would expect it to portray a one-sided image. Right? Either positive or or negative. That's not what we find. This is not political propaganda. The author is going to tell us the good, the bad, and the ugly about every one of them. He's going to tell us the good and the bad about them all. 
And so here we have a book written with a remarkable level of honesty and even-handedness. In fact, it's one of the evidences that we are dealing in the Old Testament, in the Bible, with God's Word. Because you know something? Our God is not a deceiver. He's not a liar. He always tells the truth. The book of Kings, as you may be aware, was written sometime after the Babylonian exile. Part of the purpose of writing this book was to help the Jewish exiles come to grip with why the nation had come under God's heavy hand of judgment. We all sometimes wonder, why, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow evil things to happen in the world around us? The book of Kings provides a theological explanation for the exile. Why is it that God sent His people into 70 years of Babylonian captivity and the northern tribes almost decimated? Why did God do that? Well, Kings contains the answer. God brought the exile in part because of the failure of Israel's leadership. Because godless leaders produce godless citizens. You understand that? You have godless leaders, they produce godless citizens, and godless citizens eventually come under the wrath and the judgment of God. And so the book of Kings is written to explain the exile and is written for the benefit of the remnant who returned to the land during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah so that those guys would not do the same things that their grandparents did. They would live better lives than their grandparents, more faithfully. Friends, it is so important that we study the annals of history. I love history. It's not a challenge for me to study history. I love it. But all of us need to discipline ourselves to study the annals of history, especially the annals of biblical history, because as the old saying goes, if you don't learn from the past, you are doomed to repeat it. If you don't learn from it, you will repeat it. If the book of Kings was written as propaganda, we might expect Solomon's failures would either be exaggerated or glossed over. Instead, what we find in chapter 3 is this remarkably balanced, honest evaluation. Now, as you read this chapter as a whole, you consider the big picture here in 1 Kings 3. The picture that is painted of Solomon in the early part of his reign is overall a positive picture. This is... Definitely a positive picture of King Solomon, but there are, are, are some signs of trouble. And we're going to get to the encouraging part of the chapter in just a few minutes. It's important to note, however, 1 Kings 3 begins with the bad news. We get the bad news before we get the good news. This begins on an ominous note. And what's the first thing that we learn about King Solomon? Well, The author tells us this man in the early part of his reign made a marriage alliance with the Egyptian pharaoh. And he is already, even at this early stage of his life, following the customs and the practices of pagan nations around him. Now in the ancient world, this was not unusual. This was not by any means unusual to make political alliances through marriage. And actually, this is a practice that has persisted right up until fairly modern times. I mean, just study the, the monarchies of, of, uh, of Europe and the biological connections that link almost all of Europe's royal and aristocratic families. They're, they're all linked together through marriage. 
And so marriage has not always been about romance and butterflies in the stomach. Sometimes marriage was about politics. And we saw an example of that last Sunday. Do you remember the way that Adonijah requested that he would marry his father's concubine, Abishag? We think, wow, what a, what a romantic fellow <laughs> wants to marry this, this young woman. Well, it wasn't, rom- it wasn't romance. It was political maneuvering. It was about politics and power. And in the same way, we now see Solomon forsaking the law of the Lord in order to follow the customs of surrounding nations. He is already putting his trust in the wrong place. Misplaced trust. Do you remember what God said to kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17? God's specific prohibition against these types of marriages. God says to the king in Deuteronomy 17, 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest he turn away, lest his heart turn away. Although David solemnly urged Solomon, submit to the precepts of the word and the law of God, we see already in Solomon early signs of compromise. And we know that this aspect of Solomon's early compromise is going to balloon to ridiculous proportions. That before long, we're going to see a man who has a thousand of them. A thousand wives and and concubines. You know, it's bad enough. Solomon is seeking security now from politics. Even more troubling here in the text is the mention of Egypt. Do you think that's a coincidence? The very nation that had previously enslaved the Jewish people, the nation from which God miraculously delivered them. And several centuries earlier, under the leadership of Moses, God intervened. He bought them out of slavery in Egypt. And now here is the third king of Israel. And where is he going for help? Uh, We better go back to the Pharaoh. (laughs) He can help us. And so Solomon's marriage to this Egyptian princess is the first red flag. But the second concern is not so much political as it is religious in nature. And this is the fact that God's people are at this point in history worshiping God in an irregular way. And that King Solomon himself is in some ways promoting irregular, unbiblical patterns of worship. Verse 2, we're told the people of Israel were sacrificing to the Lord at the high places and that Solomon was leading the way in this practice by going to the great high place. Notice that wording, the great high place that was at that time in Gibeon. Now friends, as you might imagine, the mention here of high places, it's prompted some discussion among biblical scholars as to whether this is a good thing or a bad thing or whether this is is neutral. For on the one hand, we know that at this point, the temple has not yet been constructed. The location of Israel's worship has not yet been fixed in mortar and brick and stone. And we also know from the law of God, in the early part of Israel's history, the place of worship was a mobile tent. The tabernacle was designed by God to be mobile. You could move it. You could relocate it as needed. There was liberty. There was flexibility in terms of the location of worship. Nevertheless, the mention of the high place here in the opening verse suggests that this practice was not pleasing to God. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 3. Look at the way verse 3 is written. It says that Solomon walked in the ways of his father David, 
with one exception, only that he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. This is not portrayed as a good thing. And as we continue along in our study of First and Second Kings, it's going to become increasingly evident the high places are always, without exception, presented negatively in the Bible. The high places were never acceptable to God, and they were not acceptable to God even before the temple was built. Why is that? Well, the problem with the high places, the reason that they are always portrayed negatively is because they were originally the designated locations for Canaanite worship. These high places were the old Canaanite shrines that they'd put up on the high hill and they would put it in the grove of trees. It was a place where the Canaanites worshipped demons. And when Israel first entered the promised land under Joshua, their instructions from the Lord was, destroy it all. Every remnant of pagan idolatry, get rid of it. But what did the people do? They didn't obey God wholeheartedly in this respect. Instead of destroying Canaanite worship, they said, well, why should we destroy these places? It's the best place in town. Let's repurpose it. Let's repurpose it for the worship of God. In certain respects, this is somewhat reminiscent of what happened in ancient Rome when all the pagan temples of the Romans were repurposed for Christian worship. And uh, pagan holidays given new Christian meaning. Some pagan influences suddenly entering into the worship of the Roman Catholic Church. We see the, the pagan corruption on the Roman religion. In the Old Testament, God instructed His people, worship Me at the tabernacle. But as they entered the land, the tribes spread out over their allotments. They were now living far apart. It was not convenient to worship God in the tabernacle. It wasn't convenient. And so what do they do? They opt for user-friendly religion. We want a religion of convenience. We want to decentralize worship. And we will use the old altars. We will use the old shrines that the Canaanites built for the honor of their false gods. You know, friends, in in some cases, it, it, it may indeed have been the case that the Lord was being exclusively worshipped in those high places. And so, for example, we read about one of them, the, the great high place in Gibeon. This is the most important high place. And in Gibeon, Yahweh is being worshipped sincerely. And actually, the, the worship there in Gibeon was being led by the Levites. It was the, the location of the tabernacle at that point in time. But it is certainly the case that many of the high places were tainted with idolatry, paganism, and sin. And the people of Israel had, in some cases, tried to integrate the worship of God with the worship of Canaanite deities. And the remnants of the old Canaanite religion were alive and well in Israel. We talked already about Elijah. That's where he's going to come into play later on, dealing with the remaining paganism that had infiltrated the the Jewish religion. And so this was the problem of the high place. Even before the temple had built, they were places of religious compromise, true worship being mixed and blended together with idolatry. And here again, the, the law of the Lord is very instructive in giving us insight. In particular, a few verses here in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. To turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12 for just a minute. Deuteronomy 12, and let's see what God said in His law about the location 
of worship. Deuteronomy 12, I'll read the first seven verses. The Lord says, these are the, the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, your, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution you present, your vow offerings and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. It's very clear there in Deuteronomy 12, God forbade His people to conserve any part of the old Canaanite religion. And He he told there, foretold in Deuteronomy 12, a coming day when worship will be centralized in one place. Worship will be centralized in one place. That brings us up to the life of King David. We know David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites and that David declared his intention before the Lord to build the temple in that very location city that Jerusalem was to be the designated location for acceptable worship. Deuteronomy, that location was to be the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 12. And so committed was King David to that plan. If you read Carefully through Samuel, you will realize David eventually brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It was with the Philistines for a while. Eventually, David brings it into Jerusalem. He builds a tent in Jerusalem where the the Ark will be kept until the temple is finally built. Nevertheless, during the reign of King David, the tabernacle did not come to Jerusalem. Did you, you ever know this as you've been reading that there was actually during David's reign this this very strange, irregular, confusing state of affairs in which there were two places of worship instead of one. The tabernacle was at the high place in Gibeon, and the Ark of the Covenant that should have been in the tabernacle was in another tent in Jerusalem. There were two places of worship, probably even two groups of rival priests, as we read about the priests that were loyal to Zadok and the priests that were more loyal to Abiathar. We have a a, a schism almost of worship. And this is a situation that King Solomon should have immediately rectified, but instead of leading by example, instead of bringing the tabernacle to Jerusalem where it ought to have been, instead, Solomon decides to do things the more popular way. I'm going to do it the way that it's been done. And he goes and he worships in the high place. And thus, whether intentionally or not, Solomon is sending a mixed signal to the people of Israel and he's actually perpetuating their half-hearted obedience to God's law. The wavering we see in the early stages of Solomon's reign, his willingness to compromise, his willingness to cut corners on worship, this is not a new problem. This is a problem that the people of God have contended with in every generation, in every culture. 
That instead of looking to the Word of God for direction, instead of worshiping God as he tells us we should worship in his Word, Solomon instead is looking to the culture around him. He's taking his lead in worship from the culture and not from the Word of God. And by doing that, he is engaging in compromised worship. We have a word for this. Do you guys know the word when you take some elements of the culture and you mix it with some elements of Christianity? Syncretism. That's your big word for the day. Syncretism. Which is just a a blending of truth and error. You take a little bit of the culture, take a little bit of Christianity, make them mix and blend together. It is very often an effort to make our Christian faith seem more at home and more acceptable to the pagan culture that surrounds us. Why? Because we don't like to be uncomfortable. We we don't like to go against the grain. We want user-friendly religion. We want a nice, easy, comfortable life. You know, can't we just get together and sing a few songs and feel good? You know? That's all we want. We want to make the worship of God acceptable to pagans. And sadly, it is often the case we engage in syncretism without fully realizing what we're doing. It's not that we wake up one morning and we say, okay, God, today I'm going to become a syncretist. And I'm going to start worshiping you in the pagan manner. No, the, this is how it works. We are, we are so much influenced by the culture. It's the air that we breathe. We, we're just so much influenced by the culture. We are so influenced by the values of the world around us that often we don't even realize the extent to which those values have permeated our way of thinking and shown up in our patterns of worship. Do you think that syncretism may have had something to do with the response of the Christian church to the COVID pandemic? We don't even realize how the patterns of the culture affect us. Now in Solomon's life, the challenge of syncretism shows up almost right away. His tendency to follow the patterns of foreign nations, to rely on those nations for military support, to conform in some respects to the pagan way of worshiping. The pagan manner of thinking. You know, it, it, it is often very difficult for us to see syncretism that exists in our own lives and in our own church. It's, it's hard for us to see. We have blind spots. And, and it becomes easier for us to see it with some historical and some cultural distance. Do you know that from our present vantage point, we can look back at, for example, the chattel slavery that existed in the southern United States and that was practiced by some Baptists and by some Presbyterians in the southern United States. And we can see with greater clarity that this form of slavery was not acceptable to God. The, the law says it point blank that we're not to kidnap and enslave. That, that is not acceptable in the law of God. It, it goes against the law of God. But it was accepted in much of the United States. Cultural norms tend to blind us to cloud our biblical perspective. That is true today. It's always been true. I'm sure that some of our brothers and sisters who live in other nations, we think maybe of the 
church in China. We think of the, the church in uh, Nigeria today, these Christian brothers and sisters who live under intense persecution. Some of them have been worshiping in secret home churches for decades. You think that maybe some of them can look at the North American church and see some elements of syncretism that we don't see? Even the best of North American Christianity can be blinded in some ways to our own materialism, to our own hedonism, to our own radical individualism, the ways in which we have been shaped by the world and the culture and the values in which we have grown up. And so sometimes syncretism is hard for us to see. We're blind to it. But there are other forms of syncretism that can be even more obvious and more sinister. For example, the way in which the Canadian church today has capitulated to wokeism and to cultural Marxism and the way in which so many churches and denominations are increasingly bowing down. They are doing homage at the high place of sexual immorality. One of the main forms of syncretism we deal with in our churches today, the shockingly widespread acceptance of sodomy, of fornication. We don't even like to call it that anymore. It's shocking even to say the word. That's what it is. Sodomy. Fornication. Transgenderism. All of these things that have become normalized, accepted in the culture around us, have now become at home in the church, in the pews of the church some cases in the pulpits of the church, in the halls of the seminary. You know, last Sunday afternoon, I listened to a sermon that was preached 20 minutes from here in a so-called Reformed church. And the pastor at this so-called Reformed church preached a sermon in which he affirmed homosexuality as being perfectly acceptable to God. This is in a what we would call an evangelical church. Acceptable to God, and, and in his sermon, counseled the congregation, we need to stop proof texting from the Bible, because that's not going to get us anywhere. We've got to stop our proof texting, and what do we need to do for the way forward? Well, start talking to homosexuals. Stop proof texting from the Bible. Start talking to homosexuals. That's the starting point for spiritual discernment, he says. Does that sound right to you? King David. King David tells Solomon, where is he to look for direction? He says to Solomon, go check out what the Canaanites are doing. Go check that out. Take the good parts. He says, Solomon, you need to look to the law of God for your direction and discernment, but today we're being told from the pulpit and from the seminary classroom, don't look to the law of God. Don't look there. In fact, look away from that. Stop your proof texting. And instead, look to the culture. And learn from the pagans. The blind are leading the blind. The whole culture is falling into the ditch and the church is falling into the ditch. You better believe it. And so, brothers and sisters, as we observe these elements of spiritual wavering in the story of Solomon, let, let us be sure not that we only look outwardly at the faults and the failures of others, we must turn our gaze inwardly. 
We must examine ourselves to become more aware of the ways in which you and I may be falling prey to subtle forms of syncretism. The ways in which even here in Rosedale Baptist Church, we, we here at Rosedale may be tempted in some ways to continue worshiping at the high places of compromise. God has commanded us to worship Him not as we want to. We worship God how He wants to. Not how I want to do it, how He wants to do it. Because true worship, as we're going to discover in the book of Kings, is not a free-for-all of whatever you want. True worship is worship by the book. That's the guide for worship. And so the first two verses reveal a Solomon already starting to waver and struggle in disobedience. But as we continue along in the chapter, we notice the tone shifts decisively from the negative to the positive. There is indeed a great deal to admire in this young man named Solomon. He did listen to some of his father's advice. In spite of his early failures, look at verse 3. It says there that Solomon loved the Lord. He walked in the statutes of David his father. In many ways, the, the young Solomon is the image of his dad. Here's a man with significant flaws, but a man after God's own heart. And he truly does love the Lord. He truly does desire to serve and to worship God from the heart. I'm not sure about you, friends. I think many of us will see here in the young Solomon a reflection of ourselves. We are Christian people. We are growing in the grace and the knowledge of our God, but yet we stumble in some ways along the path. As Christian people, we are aware, at least we ought to be aware, there are many ways in which all of us continue to fall short of God's glory. Ways in which we continue to sin against the Lord and to disregard the commandments of His Word. You know, as I considered this very honest description of Solomon in these verses, I thought about the state of my own heart, my own life before the Lord. I couldn't help but think of the words of that old hymn. You know, come thou fount. And the one, the one verse that says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, friends, in some ways, we are more like this man Solomon than we want to admit. We're more like Him than we want to admit. We have, as Christian people, hearts that have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, but yet there is still a proneness to wander. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And if you're a Christian, you feel it. You'll be able to testify as a Christian, you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you will also be able to identify some ways that you struggle with holiness, with obedience. I find it immensely frustrating. We live in the now and the not yet. Right? The now and the not yet. And it is so frustrating to see the ways that we flounder in our walk with God. And I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. The ways that we struggle and we we flounder and we continue to sin against God and there's this ongoing battle with the remnants of the sin nature. 
And Paul just sums it up perfectly in Romans 7. He says to his Christian readers, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in God's law in my innermost being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And Paul's talking there as a Christian. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Can you sense the frustration? Have you encountered it in your own life? Long ago in the Protestant Reformation, some 500 years ago, Martin Luther described Christian believers as being simul justus et peccator, which translated means, at the same time, righteous and sinner. It's a description of the Christian. Righteous and sinner at the same time. What a frustrating state of affairs. We see it illustrated in this man, Solomon. Well, Solomon's obedience to the Lord was not perfect, but his heart was inclined in the right direction. We see the evidence of Solomon's regenerate heart in the way that he worships, especially in the way that he prays. Notice here that the tremendous dedication that Solomon shows in making sacrifice. He goes to the tabernacle, which is in Gibeon. He offers Thousands of burnt offerings upon the altar. When it came to the worship of his God, there's no stinginess with Solomon. You know, New Testament, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. This man is a cheerful giver. There is no stinginess here. Just abundant evidence of this cheerful, sacrificial heart, this king who wants God to be first. And it seems that he wants to set the example for the people under his care. Now, why did people offer sacrifice in the Old Testament? Well, for two reasons. They'd either offer the sacrifices to give thanks to God or else as a means of making atonement for their sins. It would seem Solomon was aware of the ways that he was failing. He was not unaware. Otherwise, why is he making all of these sacrifices at the temple? There's a contrition. There's a contrition. There's a sorrow there for sin. An awareness that he had fallen short of God's glory. In fact, I'm inclined to see the whole middle section about Solomon's worship and prayer. I'm inclined to see this this whole section as a response of Solomon to, to his own struggle. A response of Solomon to his own struggle and sins, just as we Christians are keenly aware of our struggle, so it seems Solomon was aware of his shortcomings. He wanted to deal with it. He wanted to be in a right relationship with God. As Christian believers, God has made provision for all of our sins. Do you know that? He didn't just provide for the sins that you committed before you were a Christian. He made provision for the sins that you committed this morning, and that you'll commit this afternoon, and later on in the week. In the old covenant, all known sin was to be dealt with through animal sacrifice. In the new covenant, sin has already been dealt with at the cross. The once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so today, Christian believer, when you and I recognize that we have sinned and fallen short of the, the glory of God, what do we do? Where do we go? 
we run to the cross. We run straight to the hill of Calvary and we claim the forgiveness and the grace poured out upon us there. And we see there at Calvary, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, suffering and dying in the place of guilty sinners. His first epistle, the Apostle John recognizes our ongoing battle with sin. And he says to us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How wonderful. Solomon responded to the reality of sin by offering sacrifice in accordance with the ceremonial law. You and I don't need to do that on this side of the cross because the sacrifice, the once for all final sacrifice has been offered and John says we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He has turned God's holy wrath from our sin. He has brought us into a saving relationship with God. And so Solomon related to God in grace. Or I should say God related to Solomon in grace and he relates to us the same way. He has always been a God of grace. Solomon's heart for the Lord is seen in his adherence to the sacrificial system, but also in the way that he prays. Verse 5, we're told, The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. And and Solomon prays this remarkable prayer in verses 6 to 9. You notice Solomon's prayer does not begin with a laundry list of requests. How does he start his prayer? An acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. He acknowledges God's covenant faithfulness. Before he asks anything from God, he pauses and he worships. He worships God for His great love, the kindness that He showed to His father David. He rejoices in the grace of God in choosing someone like me. I mean, the nations would have chose my older brother, Adonijah, but God, for some reason, chose me. I'm not deserving of this role. Solomon knows he didn't deserve the throne. He didn't earn the throne. It was God's gift to him. It was God's grace. How important it is we have the same awareness when we Christians come before God. Do you know that God did not choose you because of any righteous deeds that you did or that He knew in advance that you would do? He didn't look down the tunnel of time and He said, oh, you know that John Bellingham, he's a good one. I'm going to choose him because of the good things that I foresee that he will do. That's not grace. He didn't choose us because of righteous deeds that we have done. Why did He do it? To the praise of His own glory and grace. He did it because of the righteousness of His Son. He did it because of the covenant promise He made with us, with His people, through David's greater Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we genuinely love the Lord as Christian people, that love will come out, it will be shown in the way that we pray. You know that? Your relationship with God shows up in the way that you pray, the way that you freely acknowledge His grace and kindness. Here we have the most powerful man in Israel. Guys, no pushover. This is the most powerful man in Israel, one of the most powerful kings in all the world, and his posture towards the Lord is not proud but humble. 
verse 7, look at how Solomon describes himself. He says, God, I am but a little child. I'm like a little child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I'm in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, this, this great people, too many to be numbered or counted in multitude. He's referring there to the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise that Abraham's children would be as the sand in the seashore. And he, and he recognizes, he says, God, I'm not up for this job. I can't do this job without your help. You've, you've given it to me as a grace, but I can't do it. I'm struggling. And in the same way, brethren, you and I ought to understand in our own strength, in our own power, you cannot do it. You cannot fulfill the purposes God has given you on this earth in your own strength. Do you know, Christian, if God left you and me to our own devices, if He did not send His Spirit to indwell us and empower us, we would flounder and fail in every conceivable way. We acknowledge as Christians the fact that God chose us by grace. He saved us by grace. But not only that, He sustains us by grace. He keeps us in His grace. He enables us by grace to live holy lives. To do things that are useful for His kingdom. And so Jesus impressed that upon the apostles in the upper room. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in Me and I in Him. The same bears much fruit. For apart from Me, ye can do nothing. Ye can do nothing. And so what ought our posture to be before God. Humble. Fully dependent upon Him. Aware. God, I can do nothing good apart from You. And so we do not approach God in order to tell Him how great we're doing all by ourselves. Or what a a lucky fellow He is to have us in His family. We approach Him to ask for His help. He doesn't need my help. I need His help to acknowledge my own weakness, frailty, and dependency. And this is the attitude we see in Solomon. He knows his weakness. He is nothing apart from the Spirit of God. Now in this dream, Solomon, God promises Solomon, I'll give you Whatever you will ask for. And it prompts us, doesn't it, to evaluate the state of our own hearts. If if God asked you, you know, tell me the one thing that you really want and I'll give it to you. What would you say? I mean, honestly. Would you ask God for fame and celebrity? Would you ask God for wealth? And financial prosperity? Would you ask God for a long life? Would you ask Him for good health? What is it that you desire more than anything else in the world? And here's this man Solomon. He has this rare opportunity. Ask God for anything in the confidence that God will grant it. You know what he asks for? Verse 9, he says, Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? 
He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask for a long life. He's not asking for military conquest. He's asking the Lord for wisdom. Help me, Lord. I don't know what to do. He wanted to use his knowledge. He wanted to steward his political authority in a way that would honor God and benefit the people of Israel. It's astounding. It really is remarkable. And doesn't it give us an encouraging glimpse at the hearts and the motives of this man at his early stage in ministry? Now, of course, we know if you've, if you've read further, there's a lot more to come in the story of Solomon. We're going to be shocked and we're going to be extremely disappointed. But at this early stage of life, there's a great deal of encouragement. We observe his dedication to worship and prayer, his humble heart, his earnest motives. I don't know about you, this is just so refreshing. It's just so refreshing to see a public servant, a civil servant, with his priorities straight. I mean, just read it and allow your heart to be refreshed. (laughs) Here's a magistrate who sincerely loves God, and he's thinking about others more than he's thinking about himself. And so get this, people. Solomon is not only a model for Christian people generally, he is a model specifically for civil magistrates who the Lord has placed in, in a position of authority. If you didn't already know this, the civil magistrate, the king, the governor, the prime minister, the premier, the mayor, the city councilor, every one of them should be men who honor God above all and who wisely govern the people that God has entrusted to them. And how we desperately need leadership like that in Canada oh, is the, the need of the hour. How we ought to be praying that God in His mercy would change the depraved heart of these men. I mean, to humble their astounding pride. They think they can redefine the institution of marriage and the design of God. Can you imagine the astounding pride of a person that says, God, you don't get to define marriage. I get to define it. God, you don't get to decide when the church is open. I get to decide. Astounding pride. That he would grant our magistrates salvation, that he would reorient their priorities around that of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Can you imagine how different this country would be if Justin Trudeau, if Doug Ford, if all of the rest of them woke up every morning and got out of bed and the first thing that they said, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Help me to govern wisely. Lord, I'm going to face a lot of challenges today. Help me to understand, Lord, how your word applies to the challenges that face this nation. Lord, I struggle to know what to do. I can't do it by myself. I desperately need your help. I need your wisdom for every decision that I will make on this day. I cannot fulfill the duties of my office by myself. Our nation would be totally, totally transformed. Solomon asked God for wisdom. We too, as Christians, are encouraged to ask for the wisdom and resources we need and to know that God is pleased to give it to us. The opening chapter of his epistle, James, 
says these words to Christians, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Christian brethren, when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to the spiritual resources that we need to live godly lives, there's good news. God is not stingy when it comes to wisdom. God is not reluctant when it comes to wisdom. He is able and willing to grant that request if we will only come and ask for it. He will give it to us. And all of the resources that you and I need for life and godliness are found in God Himself. Do you know that you, Christian, when you ask God for wisdom, you can have the same confidence that Solomon had. You can have the same confidence that Solomon had that He wants to give it to you. That He will give it to you. He will hear you. He will grant you the insight that you need for every day, every decision, every trial that He ordains. Well, so far in the chapter, we see Solomon's wavering, Solomon's worship. Thirdly, we see this remarkable portrait of Solomon's wisdom. It's a fascinating account here of two prostitutes, two mothers that we find in verses 16 to 28, given as evidence that God keeps His promise. God kept His word to Solomon, and by the way, God keeps His promises to us. In fact, verse 10 informs us God was very pleased with Solomon's request. He says to Solomon, because you asked this and not asked for yourself long life, riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, now I do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. And I've also given what you did not ask, both riches and honor, so that no other king will compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes, commandments, as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Very interesting to note here, and I think it's significant. When the chapter opened, where was Solomon worshiping? He was worshiping at the high places in Gibeon. After his prayer, where is Solomon worshiping? He's at the ark. He's he's in Jerusalem. And so it seems that God is already starting to work in his heart. He is prompting him to greater depths of obedience. In weeks to come, we're going to see that Solomon's first priority in the early years was to settle the issue of worship in its location. He would construct the temple in Jerusalem. Thus he would fulfill the desire of his father David and the law of the Lord in Deuteronomy 12. God's intention that Israel's worship would be localized and centralized in one place in one city. You know, friends, we could spend a a lot of time this morning talking about this story. And we're not going to do it. More important than the story itself is the reason why the story is in the Bible. The entire purpose of this story, you see, is to show us that God kept His promise. God made good on His promise. He gave Solomon extraordinary insight in the execution of his office. And so this story is proof. God keeps His promises. 
and it's proof of Solomon's unprecedented wisdom. Now, the story itself is a rather tragic one. This is an account of two mothers, two prostitutes, and their infant children. One child dies in his sleep, and in her grief, in her um, her uh, uh, effort to, uh, to recapture child, she actually kidnaps one and takes a living child as her own. In one respect, it's rather remarkable that Solomon even gave these women the time of day. You, you ever think of that? In that time, in that culture, prostitutes had no social standing at all. These are not the kind of people who would normally gain the attention or the time of the highest magistrate of the land. But here we see something of Solomon's character. He's not only deferring to men of high rank, he is, he is serving and showing his concern for the most vulnerable members of that society. These two women, who for whatever reason are at the bottom of the heap and they are in this desperate, hopeless lifestyle. And what makes this story significant in terms of wisdom is the fact that this under normal circumstances, would have been an impossible case to decide. I mean, in our own day, it would be easy. What would the judge do? He'd just get a DNA test, a blood test, and you'd be able to easily determine which of the women was a true mother. In ancient Israel, there was no DNA testing. There was no blood testing, and there was no easy way of answering the question. Due to their line of work, there's no father. There's nobody who can stand up and to claim this child as his own. The only way to settle this dispute is with the assistance of eyewitnesses. And we see here, and it makes the point in the story, there are none. There were no eyewitnesses. There's no way under normal circumstances in which justice would be served in a case like this. And so this would be a cold case. It would be thrown out of the court. But Solomon doesn't do that. And he tells the women he's going to settle the matter in the fairest and most equitable way he can think. I'm going to cut the child in half. And each one of you can have half. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable move on Solomon's part. It reveals his remarkable insight into human nature. Solomon knew, you see, that the heart of the true mother would never consent to that. A true mother would much rather relinquish her claim on the child rather than to see him killed. When you read about the court case, when you consider Solomon's response, it, it, it just makes total sense. You're like, wow, that makes sense. But here's the question. Would you have thought of it? <laughs> would you have thought of that? Never. We, none of us would have thought of that. We would have been like, I don't know. I have no idea. This is why in verse 28 it says that all Israel heard about the judgment the king rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And we marvel at the wisdom of Solomon untangling this web of lies and deceit. But as Christians, we know this, someone greater than Solomon is here. And if you and I are marveling today at this story, at the wisdom of Solomon in this story, how much more ought you and I to marvel at the wisdom of Christ? The one greater than Solomon. The plan of salvation devised before the foundation of the world. Think about this. Solomon is faced here with a problem of justice. 
And in a similar way, you and I are also faced with a significant problem of justice when we consider our sin and the holiness of God. How is it that God can be just and the justifier of sinners? Because I've sinned, and I'm guilty, and I've broken God's law. How is it that we who are guilty before the Lord can be proclaimed innocent and set free? That's the problem of justice that you and I face. But you know, in the infinite wisdom and mercy and love of God, there's an answer. We find the answer to this perplexity at the cross of Calvary. The only place in the entire universe where justice and mercy meet. The innocent Savior dying there in the place of guilty sinners, this great exchange, Christ's righteousness for my filthy rags. And so how we ought to marvel this morning at the wisdom of God. The wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the one who suffered and died there for you and me. For as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.